Now, our next speaker, her name is Penny Wilkinson, and I'm going to read her bio, her bio to you. But come on up, Penny. Let's welcome Penny. She's already on her feet. <clears throat> now, so that, so that I don't get this wrong, I'm going to read this. So, Penny, you grew up in the country. As a teenager, she learned to love a civilised drink before dinner each night. Yet in a country culture of heavy drinking, it didn't always remain civilised. Penny has studied addiction over the last 15 years and recently completed a Master of Counselling specifically looking at the relationship between addiction and trauma. She practised as a counsellor in Gladesville and has a webpage with links to free resources, www.pennywilkinsoncounsellor.com. Did I get that right? <laughs> yeah, it's all in the spelling. Okay, <laughs> that sounds good. So, Penny, um, where, where actually in the country did you grow up? Out west of Dubbo, east of Ningen. So I went to Nevertire Public School, which went up to sixth class, which sadly is closed. Less than 60 children and it closed. Okay. Does anyone know where that is out in the country? Nevertire. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yes. There you go. <laughs> That's good. Now, you live in Sydney now um, with a husband and three kids. Tell us about them. Okay. I met a husband and he, grew, he thought he grew up in the country, so he was at Goulburn on 100 acres. I'm like, and that's, that's not country. Not country. Not country. Okay. I was pretty sure I wasn't going to marry someone and go back out there. So you know, okay. Sydney's the destination. Okay. And the kids, uh, yep. my eldest will be getting married this year. She's be 25 in a couple of weeks. And my, I have a son, George, who's 24, who's a mad keen rock climber. And I have another son who's one year younger. They're all sort of. They were th- in three years, so their birthdays are all twenty, like sort of twenty two, twenty three, twenty four, yeah. and then they sort of roll over. So yeah, the birthdays understand. came pretty quick. Yep, yep. <laughs> they just keep getting older. Yep. Doesn't matter. Yep. Don't need yep. to keep track. But he's in his last year of uni, so they're all you know. They're Adult do- children. They're done. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Now here's, here's, here's a question for you: uh, If you could live in a book, or a TV show, oh. or a movie, which one would it be? Mork and Mindy. I love Mork. <laughs> Mork and Mindy. Who knows you, Mork and Mindy? You I go. knew it would show his age. <laughs> I'm only 23. Um, <laughs> what's the best thing that happened for you in 2016? 2016, I finished that degree. I can assure you three years ago, four years ago when I started it, I had two boys at uni. They were all, we were all living in a flat together and they kept saying to me they couldn't empty the dishwasher because they had an assignment due. And I thought... I can go to uni and get an assignment due and I don't have to do the dishwasher either. <laughs> you showed them, didn't you? I showed them. But, yeah, they, I mean, they showed me a lot on how to do, go- like, Google, you're almost cheating doing a degree today. Back in the day, you know, you had to read the book. That's right. That's right. <laughs> it's easy, isn't it? Yeah. Well, congratulations. I'm Thank glad you. you got through that and um, take it away. Thank you. Thank you, Tim. Now, I'm having terrible computer problems. Is there any way I can't, I can't lift this up? No? Um, can you lift that up? Technical. The, tec- the worst thing about study was technical stuff. Up. Up, Tim. Up. <laughs> yeah, it's going down. How high do you want it? Yeah, that that, is that good? Yep, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I'm not as proficient as Patricia in speaking, so, you know, I like to have notes in front of me and comfort. And, you know, if this screen goes black in front of me, I've got my other notes here. And <laughs> so, but to get started, I'm on a very short timetable. Um, let me ask a question. Who's had two consecutive alcohol-free days in the past week? Yeah, tough week to have it, but, you know, it's a, always a good question to ask. That is one of the key recommendations, two consecutive alcohol-free days. 
Another one, another question. Who's had four or more standard drinks? And I think the slide's going to come up as to what a standard drink is. Um, it varies from state to state, interestingly enough. It depends on how many meals of ethanol alcohol in the substance. So if you look on the bottle of wine, they have little categories. But roughly it's 100 mils of wine, which is about that much. So four or more standard drinks in any one session. Who is, who's had that since Christmas? We have a few hands. The other, I mean, the other question is who knows someone who else who's had four or more standard drinks? But the thing, the reason I ask these questions is not to do sort of a, you know, public survey, but it's our national alcohol body actually rent, recommends that for mental health. You will be doing damage to those neural pathways Patricia talked about if you have four or more standard drinks. And when the national alcohol body tried to bring that in as public standard health, there was a complete outcry, just like there's an outcry about you know, pubs closing and all the other things to do with alcohol. But the reason I ask those questions, it's about perceptions. Because one of the keys to recognising if there is an addiction issue, it's understanding the per perception of what addiction's about. Now, I talk from my experience about alcoholism, but addiction covers, you know, goes right across the board. So what's your first image, your first idea that comes to mind when I actually say the word alcoholic? Could it be something like this? Only 3% of our alcoholics are actually found in a park. So where are the other 97%? That's the key to recognise, rec you know, ask, that, that's the sort of key question to asking, to ask ourselves is when we're thinking about recognition. So in terms of talking to you today, I'm going to talk about things that will help us recognise and things that will help us help, help once we've recognised. So because... I've started asking you all how many drinks you've had. The fact is, recognising alcoholism is not about what we drink, how much we drink, how often we drink, what we drank. Addiction is never all about the substance. The substance is the surface issue. And that's one of the main reasons why it's so hard to recognise. This was my perception of an alcoholic, an old fellow in the bar. If there's one thing you take today, away from today, it's about these perceptions because they'll block you from recognising the problem. Knowing what alcoholism is all about is a really cunning, baffling and powerful issue. One that's not easy to recognise by either the sufferer or even those closest to them because the perceptions we believe distort the reality. Can you recognise the alcoholic in this photo? And yes, this is my family. And yes, I am the alcoholic in it. This was taken some years ago. Recognition is key. I think there's another photo, Liz, that comes up. This was my family at the height of my alcoholism. Would you have picked it? Recognition is key to being able to help. I unashamedly identify today as an alcoholic to smash your perceptions. I'm imagining most of you didn't think I was an alcoholic when I stood up here. Um, this... This, I grew up in a family that regularly enjoyed a drink before dinner while they watched the news. It was civilised. It, it was that once that alcohol went into my system, I had a vulnerability that triggered off the neural pathways that led then subsequently into my addiction. For many years, I was able to control it and manage it. My mother had very clear boundaries around what was acceptable behaviour and public drunkenness was one of those things. So when I came home from a teenage party in a terrible condition, they family still talk about it at Christmas. I rarely appeared outwardly drunk after that. 
In my mid-30s, I went looking to church. I'd got, to, I'd got through uni, I'd met a lovely chap, obviously, in a pub, still there 30 years later. That was just a lucky draw prize. <laughs> Three kids, you know. But this, when I got to church in my mid-30s, I was kind of looking for something, not quite sure what. The kids were at a Christian school. Christians didn't drink what I drank. It was the first time I met people that didn't drink the way I drank. And... You know, I got invited to... I, got, I, I met people that didn't drink like that, and so I was able to give it up. The cunning thing about that is that I was able to abstain from alcohol for six months. I'd never been a non-drinker, but I was able in that year, 2001, to do so. However, in a culture like Australia, you'll be offered a drink. And over the next couple of years, from time to time, I took the occasional drink, which set off that cycle again. And by 2002, I found I was unable to stop. Effectively, what happens in the brain of an addict is my brake system is disabled. That brake system that Patricia Wernicke talks about as being vulnerable, in the addict brain, it's at the end of the continuum where it just doesn't exist, but the accelerator does. And once you put that substance in, you're in a vehicle with an accelerator on full ball and no brake system. It's a pretty scary ride. My strong willpower was rendered useless against the power that substance had over me. Alcohol provided the relief, and I chased the relief living that way. I chased the rewards. The baffling thing was, at that time I was surrounded by friends, long-term life good friends. I was surrounded by a beautiful, loving family and a loving church, great support, and yet internally it was the most frighteningly lonely time of my life. Today, I am in recovery of alcoholism, I had my last drink on the 18th of March 2003. As Patricia says, that is another complete story. <laughs> I was indeed one of the fortunate ones because my alcoholism was recognised in its early stages and the damage to my family, and there was damage, however, it has been limited. Because recognition matters. So I want you to think today how you'll recognise addiction in yourselves, in your families and in your communities. It'll be there. I can guarantee you it is not just in our parks. There are surveys out there that say, you know, it's anywhere between 15 and 50% in our society. There will be some here struggling today, struggling just like I was in 2002. It is like living a ground, your own personal Groundhog Day. I hate that movie. Every time he steps in the puddle, I'm like, no, not the puddle. <laughs> Maybe alcohol's not your struggle. Maybe it's another form of substance addiction, as we've heard today. There are other drugs... There's prescription medications. I know lots of people who chase the old Valium from doctor to doctor. Cigarettes, sugar, there's behavioural addictions, pokies, porn, screens, all kinds of manner of things. The list is endless. And I know lots of folk in lots of different areas that I can put you in touch with to help you. Because any recovery on your own is impossible. Why such a bold statement? Addiction will beat you. Addiction is at the end of a spectrum where the brain is not functioning. It's a brain disease. It's where parts of the brain are actually broken. The substance or behaviour becomes the only solution your brain can offer for every single one of your life's challenges because it works so effectively for you. But in fact, each time you succumb, your problems will worsen. And that is how bad habits become an addiction. This is the addiction cycle. It goes around and around. I often have a funnel in the back of my car, but I didn't come in my car today. You know, one of those things you feel when you run out of petrol and you put in the cylinder. 
And as you go round and round, you know, physics will inform us that that is actually speeding up. And down it goes. The pain can be either physical, emotional or spiritual. It can be relieved by any drug of choice. You will receive temporary oblivion, temporary relief. Oblivion being my word. (laughs) Followed by the negative consequences of such behaviour, which leads to the guilt, the remorse, the shame, the idea, oh, I'll never do that again, I'll never do that again. But it just creates more pain and around it goes again. The problems escalate, life's coping strategies decrease and life becomes all about finding that relief. This was my life in active addiction. So back to the idea of recognising. How was my alcoholism recognised? I mean, who in this room could have recognised from that lovely photo those gorgeous kids and all the clothes matching? (laughs) I even have my nails painted. (laughs) Three key words that I hope will help you today. There's three, we already heard from Patricia, denial, progression and fatal. First word, denial, I was told, you know, it's not a river in Egypt. And I'm like, what, what? (laughs) When it was suggested I was alcoholic, I can tell you, I did not believe it. That was my denial. I mean, look at that outward appearance. My addiction had not progressed to anywhere near a park bench. I was living in a multi-million dollar home in a culture that drank a couple of bottles of wine every day, driving a flash car, a couple of gorgeous kids, like, you know, what was the problem? This perception of normality simply added to my denial. Along came a pastor who cared and who understood and had travelled and journeyed with other people who suffered alcoholism. He challenged my drinking habits. He even suggested I was alcoholic. I can... I'm just like, what? (laughs) Not only did he suggest I was alcoholic, he steered me toward the solution. He took me to a meeting of AA. I can assure you I hated it and I didn't go back for six months. Today I realise, though, how much that single action saved not just my life but my family's life. At AA, this denial was constantly challenged by the stories of others. Denial is a stumbling block for many. You see, the mind of the alcoholic will tell them they're not alcoholic. In fact, that mind says the drink is the solution, not the problem. Remember that cycle? Pain and then temporary relief. Alcohol is the temporary relief for the alcoholic. It makes their life bearable. The addict's mind also says it's someone else's fault. And usually the addict's clever enough to have someone around them to blame. Denial. Think of it like a blindness. The addict cannot see their problem. They cannot see what you can see. And your communication will fail with them when you expect them to see what you can see. This is why challenging a friend's addiction or a family member's addiction is so difficult. Each individual that has the struggle has to decide for themselves. AA's Tradition 3 talks about the desire to to stop drinking is the only requirement for membership. They've just got to turn up. Accepting they have a problem is crucial to the individual accepting help. There are many quizzes online. Usually I have quizzes printed out, but, you know, between the tech problems and the computer. You can go online and get a 20-question quiz. They're famous. When I had a hangover, I could get 19 out of 20. I just hadn't been to jail. (laughs) When I didn't have a hangover, I could get 1 out of 20. That is what denial looks like. And the temptation is always to deny this illness. The world will tell you, oh, you don't have it. You don't have a problem. So back to these words, denial and progression... Progression. If you have a family member, you will have watched their progression. 
My husband talks about it being like a frog in boiling water. You know, if you put it straight in, it'll jump out. But if you just put the frog in and let the water rise slowly, the temperature, it won't jump out. What I mean by this is it'll look different at different stages, much like a pregnant woman. Now, I had three kids in three years, and they said, you can't be a little bit pregnant. I can assure you, when I got those tests, I knew what they were talking about. And it's the same with this. You can't be pregnant just in the nine-month, but between one day pregnant, nine-month pregnant, it looks different. It's the same with alcoholism. You can't be a little bit different. That brain structure can now be seen in an MRI scan. It is a different brain structure to a person who is not an addict. I may have only been in my active addiction for a few years. The guys on the park bench have been there for a few decades. But you just, you know, I've just missed a line, sorry. <laughs> this idea has to be smashed, this idea of, of denial. So denial and progression. I jump on, I'm worried about the time. Of course the temptation is to deny the progression. For me, getting honest over the years, I had to admit my problem was indeed escalating. And by the end of 2002, I was in deep trouble. I rarely had an abstinent day, although I'd had that abstinent period the year before, and I was rarely under 0.05 when I got in a car with those three kids. That cycle of addiction, from pain to temporary relief to negative consequences, was speeding up at a very, very rapid pace. The progression of addiction only took one way. It's like an elevator going down. The end of that destination is, is death. 30% of our suicides are addicted-related. That brings me to the third key word of fatal. Addiction destroys. It ultimately destroys all that we hold dear. Effectively, in neuroscience, it actually destroys that cognitive part of the brain, that prefrontal cortex, because that's the bit that separates us from the animals. So we become like an animal. And if you've ever seen a heroin addict trying to get a fix, it's a very animalistic behaviour because the part of their brain is ruined. You can go on a website called Dr Daniel Amen and he can show you these sites and what the damage does. Even caffeine will do that damage to that prefrontal cortex. So we all hold these things dear and indeed all these things God holds dear. Our precious bodies, Patricia talked about, our families, our communities, essentially all our relationships. I've heard addiction described as a relationship disease. These are the things that make us human. Addiction left untreated is a fatal condition, not just physically, but mentally and spiritually. So recognition matters, and I hope these words will help you today to understand what addiction looks like. But once we've recognised it, what can we do to help? For me, the 12-step program used in Alcoholics Anonymous has been and is still an incredibly powerful program. There's a chap by the name of Dr John Kelly, who's now the head of the Harvard Medical School. He's researched therapeutic 12-step groups for 25 years. He says they have a 25% chance of getting somebody into recovery as opposed to counselling in motivational interviewing or cognitive behaviour therapy, which are about 12%. He said if you had a cancer product that was 25% would get you well and one that was 12%, you'd never hear of the second one. But because the 12-step movement is effectively a spiritual program, the medical world doesn't want to know about it and rarely recommends it. What are these 12 steps? The first step is we admitted we were powerless. Fill in the gap over our lives have become unmanageable. It's this idea of powerlessness that saved me. It's the idea that I was not in control. The control is at the heart of the problem of addiction. We're trying to control a condition we actually don't have power over. 
Remember that car? No brakes? I'm powerless to create brakes. And admitting this is the first step to recovery for everybody. We have two groups here today, perhaps. One that is seeking to help others who are struggling with addiction and one that is struggling with the substance. And for both groups, this is the trick, both groups, the first step's about powerlessness. As addicts, we're powerless to stop. And as helpers, we're even more powerless to stop someone else. Admitting this powerlessness is a surrender. To the group seeking to help others who are addicted, that is, the helpers, the carers, the family, the friends, yes, you can have the same problem as the addicted one. That is control. And admitting that is often harder for the helper than it is for the addict. To the other group, I can encourage you to do a quiz. Get honest about the results. Denial blocked my surrender. The more I tried on my own will, the more I failed, the more I dug that pit. It's like going down a slimy, slimy hole. At the end of my drinking, I drank against my will and I deluded myself that I had control. The denial was I couldn't see it, even after it was pointed out to me. I actually didn't want to see it. The only solution I had for my life's pain was my substance, and I was terrified someone would take it off me. Recovery only begins when the one who has the problem can actually see that problem. And this sort of honesty is like a gift from a power greater than ourselves. Denial can blind any one of us. For those struggling with temptation today, I encourage you to get honest, admit it, accept it, and take some action. It will not go away of its own will. There is a solution available, and I can assure you it is not an easy option. Recovery is never the soft option for an addict. Like many before me, I found my solution in two places. The message of Jesus was powerful for me. The fact someone loved me and died for me and accepted me completely in complete, full-blown, active addiction was incredibly powerful. And the message of Alcoholics Anonymous teaches me today how to live. Today I survive by putting those 12 steps into action. Remember the first step of admitting powerlessness? The second step is, I came to believe that a power greater than myself could actually restore me to sanity, actually cared and was interested in restoration. And the third step is, that I surrender my power, my will, my life to that power. Studying the Bible helped me to learn how God wanted me to live and actually have my life to the full. And like so many in 12-step groups, I knew a higher power, one that was full of love and grace, a higher power that offered complete freedom. I knew Jesus Christ as my saviour. I met Jesus through his word as other Christians had opened the Bible with me. He was more than just a power. He was a real person who had died for me. He helped me see this incredible self-centeredness that had locked me into my behaviours. And he loved and accepted me. And that amazing grace has been in, in, internally unbelievably life-changing. Jesus' death on the cross, which we celebrate at Easter, changed my eternal destination, as Jess talked about heaven. He set me free from myself, but it did not initially treat my alcoholism. AA had introduced me to people with my addiction, people who talked honestly about their struggle. And Jesus used those, high, those conversations to smash through my denial. This was the starting point for my recovery, that surrender of self-will. I got honest. The Bible and AA gave me the idea of surrendering to a power greater. This simple idea 
is what is researched by people like Dr. John Kelly. It has freed millions from slavery of addiction. Those early years were unbelievably difficult. My AA friends would talk to me honestly and helpfully about addiction. They had the tools to live a sober life. And my Christian friends talked to me honestly and helpfully about Jesus, the ultimate one who'd set me free. And out of this was born this ministry that I now lead called Overcomers Outreach. Like many parts of our world, it's difficult to talk about Jesus, and it's the same in AA. So Overcomers Outreach simply provides a place for anyone struggling with any addiction to come and talk about their higher power as Jesus while they're working the 12 steps. I am a firm believer that addiction needs treatment, just like broken leg, just like depression, just like all sorts of other illnesses. And the 12-step movement offers this treatment. God has used those 12 steps to help me apply his power in my life. And so at Overcomers Outreach, we've combined those two tools. What are these tools? Number one, abstinence is crucial. Remember that cycle? I can't tell you the number of times, yes, in Christian communities, I'm told, one won't hurt. And for most people who have a brake system, one won't hurt you. I can assure you, in my brain, without a brake system, one will hurt. It's the physical side of addiction, and it kicks, that, it kicks that accelerator into gear, and off I'm gone again. The cunning thing about it is I might not go the first day I have the first drink. It might be the next week or the week after, whatever. I was eight years giving up a two-packet-a-day cigarette habit because the first one kept taking me back out there. Recovery, the second point, recovery cannot be done alone. The reason isolation is fatal is because the brain of the addict only has the substance as their solution. They need another brain. As I love the way Patricia put, you know, we have the rest of us as a body, you know, and it's like that with those in recovery. In isolation, they, they are, the addict only has their one brain to listen to, and that brain only has the substance as a solution. And the 12 steps work. They've kept my life out of the pit of addiction for nearly 14 years now. There are many times I've seen God use this language of powerlessness and use the idea of a higher power without defining him to bring lasting freedom to the people who don't know him. It really does work. So wrapping up, how can we kick a habit? Work on the perceptions. Ponder addiction in the light of those three words, denial, progression and fatal, and understand the seriousness of this problem in our community. More than four standard drinks on any one occasion is breaking neural pathways in the brains. How can we help others? Know your 12-step Areas. Know, you, know where your meetings are. You know, Google really is an amazing tool. You just Google. There's a little app that says find a meeting AA and you put your location in and away it comes. If the, I often get asked questions about, you know, how do you know when someone's in addiction? It is like a continuum. So you can start out here and get further and further down. Programs like recovery will help you, and, and I've seen them, stop people going all the way to the end of that path and come back from it. It's like a 12-step program, but they don't use the 12 steps. They use ideas from scripture. In Sydney, there's Overcomers Outreach. We use both 12-step material and scripture. I have a number of DVDs available with me today where I go through and explain the 12 steps. Um, and remember, mostly, you know, it begins with powerlessness. It's a crazy idea to us in a Western individualated world, but powerlessness really does work. It enables us to trust a power greater than ourselves. There is a powerful God who has made himself known to us. He can and does work miracles even today. I see them all the time in my work when someone gets sober. His son Jesus can set people free and I encourage you to check him out with programs like Life. Finally, to those today struggling, there really is help available. 
Addiction cannot be overcome alone, but it can be overcome. Thank you. And pass back to Tim for some questions. Oh. Which I'm going to, sorry. Tim. Thank you, Penny. Very helpfully taking us into the world um, to think through addiction. That's awesome. We do have time for questions now. So, um, David and Michelle will be looking for really hands nice. that go on up. And um, so just give them a little wave and we'll fire some questions. Um, I think the things that, as we're looking for a question, I, th I think the things that stood out for me were um, those two things in regards to alcohol addiction, um, four or more standard drinks in one sitting, um, can you go two consecutive days without alcohol? Chances are many of us are thinking of ourselves and people in our lives. And, 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 and the other thing that's kind of stood out to me is that if 97% of people struggling with addiction are not homeless, then a number of us are struggling with addiction. You need to be real about that. And are you able to self-reflect and own... Um, whether you are, because chances are you're in denial, you, you actually don't know you, you're struggling with addiction. That's the case, right? So we need to get really real about this and, mm. and try and dig in. Um, okay, we've got a question here from Sal. Um, hi, Penny. I'm wondering, is addiction something that you think travels in families? Um, I'm not exactly asking, is it genetic, but um, is it just random that you don't know who whose brain won't put the brakes on and it could just be randomly anyone or is, does it sort of, I don't know, is there any prediction, I guess, of who it might affect? There's been a twin study where they've taken two children that are twins, genetic twins, and the twins that are living not in their birth family have the same rate of being, you know, becoming an addict as the twin that stayed in the birth family. And what they found is there's a one in four chance. What that means, though, in terms of genetics, they haven't actually found a specific gene. What they found is a cluster of DNA, and given that cluster in a certain set of circumstances, it will trigger off the vulnerability. So I was a child who had a, that vulnerability out of my four siblings. I have three brothers that don't. And um, give there were certain circumstances in my life that triggered that off that then led down to the path. So, yeah. G'day. Um, in terms of helping someone who uh, you think might have an addiction, um, where that person uh, isn't really interested in Christianity or uh, being helped, what, what sort of practical ways do you suggest to talk to them uh, about that? I think that's where the God that I believe in shows the most amazing grace because he loves addicts. He just loves them. He's got this thing with prodigals. <laughs> and in AA, I think that's the most powerful thing is that they can find this God even without necessarily naming him through those 12 steps. And then, you know, when Christians are in those rooms... They'll shine like a light. Like my recovery in AA is, is people will come up to me and say, who is your higher power? Like, I want what you've got, you know. It's, but, you know, I have to work my program to be in that condition and it, it's a full-time job. <laughs> so, sorry, so just to follow up, so to the person who's in complete denial and they just don't even want to go to AA... Oh, good luck. What do you do? Yeah, good luck. <laughs> it's like, 
<laughs> intervention. You know, talk to them about two abstinent free days and they'll just go, right. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, you know, but you, it's like planting seeds. You don't know where those little seeds are going. Do you know what I mean? Like, I had that time. There, there is a statistic by a guy called Michael Slade out of Cambridge University that says it takes someone 29 years from the first time they pick up a drink to the, to the first time they start to think about, you know, doing something about this. I mean, that's 29 years. It's an average figure. So some people are quicker and some people are slower. And then it takes nine years from that point until they get one-year recovery. Average. They're average statistics. It's long, isn't it? Yeah. Ross? Yeah, I just would like to see if you can comment. How, what role does affirmation and nurturing in a family environment help to fight against alcohol or any kind of addiction? Would you like to comment on that? A positive family nurturing situation will be really, really helpful. But for whatever reason, you still see people come, especially through AA, with, that, with, with issues. You still see, as Patricia said, the, the porn that's available to kids in their early teens will change the pathways in the brain. So if that child has that vulnerability and the substance goes in, it's, when you talk about wiring, I think this thing or your blow dry, hair dryer or whatever, it's got 250 volts, so you put that in. If you're overseas and the volt system's whatever different, you put that in. You know, you put a substance in the brain like that and you get a 500-shot volt through, your wiring gets a little messy. So for the electricians out here, they'll understand what happens. And it's like that when you put the substance through the pleasure centres. So porn is really altering the brain substances. There's a guy by the name of Alan Shaw who's done a paper, written a paper in 2016, where he's talked about the violence in, um, and the way violence affects the brain and affects the male testosterone. And he's done a whole research around that in terms of, you know, counteracting how nurturing, nurturing and the violence and the effect on it. And it's just, you know, the amount of nurturing, like if the substance is giving you 100% charge, the nurture won't give you above 10%. In your reward system. You know, it's like nothing for an ice addict, that effect of ice on their brain is so powerful. Like, you know, it's, let's say a number of two and a half thousand volts. No 250 volts going to give you that feeling. So you can have as loving a relationship as you like and as nurturing and as a positive affirmation. But if your charges are going through the brain like that and you're playing with the substances, you're gone. You know. So when substances rewire your brain, can they then be undone? Can your brain neurons be realigned? The neuroscience is not complete on that yet. Um, it's interesting, the Alcoholics Anonymous big book was written in 1935 and there's a line in it that's all 1939. There's a line in it that says, we are like men who have lost our legs. We won't grow new ones. I have a father who's 80 in a wheelchair. There's a lot of things he can do in life, but he just can't go upstairs. Mm. And it's a bit like that with the addict. You know, I've got a disability, there's a lot of things I can't do, but I've learnt through the process of, of how I grow to myself, looking at my inventory, helping others, speaking about it publicly, that help abstinence. abstinence. Yeah. So up here? Yep. Uh, for the next generation growing up into adulthood, would you recommend staying away from alcohol altogether? It's interesting. I have had some interesting conversation with my boys. They are active club, nightclub sort of... I mean, one of them's become a DJ, so we can exist in the nightclub scene without having drinks. But, you know, he will, on more than one occasion, have more, more than four standard drinks. I've recommended 
less than four standard drinks. I've shown them the brain scans. I've recommended abstinence. But as all the mothers in the room know, you know, you can talk to them till the cows come home. You know? it's, it's, it's difficult. I mean, if you've got a genetic vulnerability in your family, I would warn you to be very careful. But interestingly enough, what I see in our Christian communities, particularly through Overcomers Outreach, is that if you're not drinking, you'll be doing porn or something else. And I can assure you, it's a, it's a lot easier to recover from alcoholism than it is from porn addiction. Mm. It opera- and like food addiction, it operates on a different part of the pleasure centres in the brain. Mm. Mm. Where's the microphone over here? Yeah, Kimmy? Yep. Just to link the two talks, though, um, we, we all know the, um, the benefits of the 12-step alcoholics, but is there a 12-step pornography addiction group happening started? Yes. Yes, there's an, there's I think we all need to know that one as well. Thank you. Yep. Um, and one of the problems with the porn addiction is if you've been searching on your computer for porn, the minute you go onto a website to look for recovery programs, all the porn sites are all over it and they will link you back to it. Um, so I have one of the guys in our Overcomers Outreach group and he has created a little USB with all the safe sex recovery sites on it. So there's Sexaholics Anonymous, there's Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous, there's Pornography Anonymous. They have Skype meetings. Um, you know, they, do, they have all kinds of resources and access. Yes, they have actual physical meetings. I'm not 100% sure of where they are on the coast, but I know where they are in the CBD. And they are very... They are limited. They are highly confidential. And for the women who are married to porn addicts, there is a group that started up, funnily enough, in Brighton, the sands of all places, like the other end of the world, on <laughs> a Tuesday night, that I know women all over Sydney that travel to. Two Christian women lead it. It has been one of the strongest support groups in Sydney. But it is what they call a closed group. So you mm. can, there's no attendance unless mm. you, know, you identify. Just this year, we have begun a, a group for young men in this church. Um, with that struggle, and um, and there's a number of young men being helped by that. So, but you, yeah, you can see it's a world we really need to yeah. press into. So, yes. Um, so, off the back of the uh, pornographic one that we're just talking about, the help program. Like, is, do you know if there's like any other help programs for other more general addictions, like you know, not being able to put down an Xbox controller for like 12 hours, or you know, um, shopping. You know, shopaholics, like, you know, I know yep. family members who literally will go out and spend thousands of dollars and then they don't even know why they're buying it. So, like, um, yeah. what about those kind of addictions? In the States, apparently, there's 250 anonymous groups. But what you'll note with the 12 steps is it's the first step. Is I had that blank line when I put that slide up. It doesn't matter what the, what the substance is. The rest of the 12 steps are exactly the same. The key about going to your particular group, and we do this at Overcomers Outreach, we only identify in our higher power as Jesus, and we encourage the Christians, why we only meet once a month, to go to the individual group, because you've got to identify your substance. I mean, I can sit there and listen to, you know, I mean, I don't do porn, and I listen to you, and I'm like, well, so what, you know? But you start talking to me about, you know, the latest alcohol, I'm like, you know, that green drink, that mid-off or whatever. I mean, I've never had that. And I'm like, oh, bummer, I should have tried that. (laughs) Well, you know, that'll do it for me. So, you know, you've got to find the thing. You've got to, and, and, and someone will sit next to me and go, yeah, really? I'm like, you know, and I'm like, yeah, and I really, and I connect with that individual. Um, there's a guy by the name of Dr. Philip Flores that talks about addiction as an attachment disorder. And in terms of the question from over here about nurturing and positive affirmation and, and just being held, you know, just being able to go from a negative emotion back to a positive emotion without using a substance is really the basis of what attachment care is all about 
Um, and he's got a very, you know, as I studied the trauma, I looked at all of that. But, you know, all this stuff gets deeper and deeper and deeper. As Tim's, you know, it's got to start with abstinence and then the healing can begin in all the other areas of life. We can't heal an addict who's continuing to use because their body is being reminded of the unsafety that that using will create. And so they're going for the pleasure, they're going for the solution, but the solution is actually the problem. And it's, you know, it's a bit like going up a seesaw and then the seesaw, you know, you've just, as this question here, you've sort of got to wait till the seesaw's ready to tip. And, you know, I was lucky that... I mean, I had a conversation with someone in August 2002. I had another conversation with someone in January 2003. I didn't get sober till the 18th of March 2003. So, you know, that was my period of time. But, I mean, I could... I, I, I can remember looking at it at the age of 19. So, you know, I didn't go to my first meeting until I'm 37. We might just take one more question down here. Hey, sorry, I just wanted to ask... So, for those of us with... Like, well, children of any age, really. I think you hear stuff like this and there's a natural reaction to just go, well, I should probably keep my children away from all of this stuff. But there's a part in me that thinks that's actually going to create a worse outcome because all of a sudden there's all these forbidden fruits from all these things that you've <laughs> restricted from them. Um, and like you're saying, there's, you know, there's clusters of DNA and that, it's all a bit... There's like a little bit of magic in it almost that we just don't know and we can't predict these things. Is the best option as a general stance not abstinence but understanding? Information's a powerful tool. My One of my children says to me, you know, the greatest gift he's been given is to be able to sit at a table and have a meal with the family without having alcohol. Every, you know, I mean, I live in a particular area and every, at every meal there would be alcohol. And not that my family was alcoholic. And um, so that's his gift. Look, I don't know. You know, my three kids are growing up. They're damaged. It's... <laughs> I mean, I've done a master's in trauma now. I know the damage they've done. I can help other people. But, you know, it's, it's a tough question. I mean, I'm really glad I'm not raising kids. <laughs> you- you're still raising kids, then? No, I? I'm, they're done. I'm like, the dishwasher's finished, it's over. <laughs> I, but you're right. The thing is, if you control them, you know, there's a, there's a thing in A, it talks about um, the trifecta, Irish Catholic alcoholic. You know, they were told not to drink. You know, they call that the trifecta. So, you know, because it's in the Irish blood and it's, mm. you know, Catholics were told, the forbidden fruit mm. thing. Mm. So it, mm. it's, it's difficult. And, you know, and we're all individuals. We're all knitted together in different ways. And so each child will be different. You know, mm. Each child will have different needs. Mm. You know, I, had se- I had certain sensitivities and vulnerabilities and you know, that triggered off other things. And you know, it's, everyone's got a different path. But then God has you know, used it for what I do now. I couldn't have done if I hadn't had that path. So you know, as I watch my kids trek through the dark waters, it's like, well, I wonder where they're going. But... You know, God knows. God knows where they're going. And he has a plan and his plans are always the best. Yeah. So it is, but yeah, good luck. <laughs> Penny, um, <laughs> I you, really mean it. <laughs> you've been very honest with us uh, and very open with us. You've made yourself quite vulnerable with us and mm, we really appreciate thanks, that. Thanks, Tim. Um, it's been so helpful for us, hasn't it, to be thinking about the world of addiction. It's very real. We need to acknowledge it. We need to work hard to not deny it. We need to be honest with ourselves. And there is help available. There is hope. And ultimately that hope is found in God. Mm. Yeah? It's awesome. 
Why don't we thank Penny? It's thank been you. a good time. Thank you. Thank you.